says, if I'm playing quarter note lip slurs at about 90 BPM, do I need to change the position of my tongue or just the lips? Uh, you don't need to move your lips. You just use the tongue and the air to make the change, right? Uh, you just change the vowel shape inside of your mouth, which means that you're gonna end up moving your tongue. So, uh, uh, so, uh, 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 you can see, you can kind of see it in my tongue. Uh, uh, it's moving up and down to make space for the resonance of that new note. So when I'm thinking of doing lip slurs like that. That's what I'm thinking about. It's that moment of change. It's the it's the movement between the partials. It's the changing of the vowel sound, which is all controlled by the tongue and the air, not the lips. We don't we don't do lip slurs by using the lips. It's a common misconception. Uh, we do we do lip slurs by adjusting the air, <clears throat> adjusting the air. It's a tip to master the vibes. You mean like actually the vibes like like the, the the mallet instrument i don't know you'd have to go to somebody else i don't play vibes so uh, i can't really tell you but i could tell you that uh, on any instrument to master it you have to kind of put in the time on the technique because especially as a jazz musician or improvising musician a lot of time uh, a lot of times he said that uh, people focus on um, getting to like just expressing themselves without having good technique first. But, but the better technique you have, the more free you are to um, connect with your audience, to make great music. So technique is a tool. So you got to have great technique in order to um, execute your ideas fully musically. That's how I think about it. What do you think about the klezmer trombone? I don't know that much about klezmer trombone, to be totally honest. And I try to be honest as much as I can. Um, are there great klezmer trombonists? Uh, if there are, I would love to hear who they are. I don't know any klezmer trombonists, gotta be totally honest. I've played a few klezmer gigs and played trombone on those gigs, but I can't say that I was like, oh, I know that about this guy and I checked him out beforehand. Um, but I think it has a very strong connection to like early jazz, like early swing, thinking about people like, you know, Tromi Young and Kid Ori and people in between, you know, those are kind of bookends, but uh, please make an Instagram clip of you playing Inner Urge. Um, well, Inner Urge happens to be one of my least favorite songs to play on the trombone because that second part, I will tell you my biggest pet peeve, one of my biggest pet peeves as a educator is when the trombone trombonists play and they just kind of wiggle their slide around and they don't actually play the notes. And what does everybody do on that part on the trombone? And I'm like, just don't play the song. Either play the notes or don't play the song. I'm sorry, that's just like a weird little pet peeve of mine. So uh, take that as you will, but you probably won't see me playing a clip of Inner Urge. Uh, maybe I could blow, maybe I'll blow over the changes, but the head, man, is just, well, number one is really hard. And number two, um, maybe I should just do it just to prove myself wrong that maybe it's not possible. So maybe that's a good challenge. I'm gonna write it down this week. I'm gonna see if I can do it. I haven't played in an urge since I was in uh, college. I know Elliot Mason can do it. I played it with him once. He uh, smoked me, but uh, <laughs> but it's a good challenge. All right, I lost my pen, so I don't know where I'm gonna write this down. Okay, I'm writing it down right now. So Lazam, you better hold me accountable. Ask me if I don't if I don't do it. I'm gonna do it. Inner urge on Instagram. All right, let's see how long it takes me. 
We'll see how many weeks it takes me. Remind us, what's your favorite ballad to play? Oh, I have a lot of favorite ballads. I'm definitely a sucker for ballads. Um, do I have to pick one? I'm going to tell you all my favorite ballads. First of all, Stardust, Hoagie Carmichael. Um, that's a fantastic, maybe a little cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, I suppose. Um, I love, um, I don't know why, Ghost of a Chance. Uh, it's like one note is the melody, but Clifford Brown plays a great version of it. It's so nice. But Beautiful is a great one. Ah, Vanessa likes it too. Nice. But Beautiful I really love. And then I'm really a sucker for Ellington and Strayhorn ballads. I love Flowers, I love something. Uh, I've recorded that one. I love Single Petal of a Rose. That's like sort of a ballad, I guess. Uh, Ellington. I love, um, I've just been getting into Star-Crossed Lovers. I'm going to record it on an album I'm going to make this fall. Um, Star-Crossed Lovers I've been checking out. Yeah, Flower. Flowers of Love Something. Yeah, But Beautiful is great. Um, I love Curtis Fuller's version, But Beautiful. Nice arrangement of it. I'm a sucker for good arrangements too. I like, um, I also for a long time really, lo I love the melody of I Remember Clifford. I like to listen to Benny Golson play it, I think more than I like to play it. I don't know, but I really like that, that too. That's some ballads, great ballads. You gotta have a good range of ballads to play. It's definitely, so this week I've made a lot of my students bring in a list of tunes and the way that I learned from um, Wycliffe Gordon to kind of like organize tunes, which I thought was a great way. And I've tried to pass that along as like, not just making like an alphabetical list or like just like a list of tunes. It's like to organize them into categories like blues, songbook tunes, jazz tunes, like Benny Golson tunes, for example, would go in like the jazz tunes. It's like tunes without words, but that are like songs, like stable mates, etc. And then like, and then ballads is its own category and bebop tunes. So we use those five categories, but then you can look and see like what are your strengths and your weaknesses in terms of knowing tunes because uh, we all have our strengths and weaknesses in terms of the tunes uh, area and it's an ongoing battle here with tunes to try to make sure that we're staying up to up to snuff remembering tunes and playing tunes because at least as trombonists we don't get to play tunes that much um, at least in my experience the gigs gigs that you're reading are more common than gigs that you're uh, just playing tunes at least that was the case for me. It has been the case for me. Uh, and so I have had to make, a, make it a priority to like practice playing tunes and practice uh, different types of tunes. And so this ballad, this thinking of ballads exercise is a good one. Um, there's so many ballads, though. I mean, you could you could spend all day sitting here uh, talking about ballads. I mean, some people play like Roy Hargrove plays Speak Low as a ballad. That's really killing. Um, I don't know. Like so many tunes can kind of fluctuate between um, different I wish I knew some train plays at a ballad happy birthday train train's birthday was this week I wish I knew train plays as a ballad but Blue Mitchell plays a and train plays as a ballad so I don't know there's lots of great ballads body and soul of course is the class a classic ballad to know as once it says when you breathe while playing trombone do you still keep your lips on the mouthpiece what is going on with your lips once you breathe well here's the trombone Let's see. Let me see if I can do it live and. Uh... Oh yeah. So when I'm. Uh... So that I guess basically my top lip stays on the mouthpiece. 
and the bottom lip really but it kind of comes in from the sides i guess is the technical answer um, some people like to breathe through their nose i've been listening to this book called breath that talks a lot about nose breathing versus mouth breathing in terms of your health and there's like a lot of research that has gone into how much better it is to breathe through your nose than through your mouth and so i've been thinking about that but i don't know about being able to get enough air fast enough um, with nose breathing and trombone especially like i have allergies here in texas and they're really bad this fall so like for me, if when I breathe in, number one, it's loud. And number two, like I don't get enough airs if I go and kind of take a big breath in really fast, you know? So, um, you know, I, I still think like mouth breathing, even though that's, you know, not ideal, is probably the best thing for your uh, trombone playing. But yeah, I keep, I keep the top and bottom lips on and kind of breathe through the side of my mouth. How did you choose a mouthpiece? Um, well... I chose a mouthpiece by ordering a lot of mouthpieces, playing a lot of mouthpieces, and then going with the one that um, I found to be comfortable and kind of get the sound I wanted. It's been a, a process. It's slowly but surely, uh, I, I've gone away and I keep coming back to this Marcinkowitz mouthpiece. So I play a Marcinkowitz C6E-S, which sometimes they're hard to get a hold of. So if you wanna try one out, send me a message. Uh, either on Instagram or send me uh, an email, um, nickfinzer at gmail. You can just send me an email and say I want to try the I want to try the um, the, the Mercedes because I have to connect you with the reps there because uh, we're working on getting the mouthpieces out into the world a little bit more, but they're not um, as readily available as they used to be. Um, but they're really great, so I like it because. Um, it's not too heavy. It's light. It has a more of a lightweight blank. I tried to put this mouthpiece on a heavy blank and it didn't work. So it didn't. It really didn't work out at all. So it's wider and wider than a 51D. I see Trevor's question. They have a mouthpiece chart on their website. If you go to Marcinkowitz, so you can see like the actual measurements. I'm not really great with the measurements and stuff, but you know it has kind of a big throat. Why? And it's kind of big and wide and comfy. You know. But it's not shallow. It's like it's pretty deep, but it's it doesn't have a lot of weight to it. You know, you see like the it has good response. So it's kind of bigger on the bigger side, but it's not it's not slow. You know, like it's fast. That's what I want. I want fast response. And I've been playing this mouthpiece since um, two thousand since two thousand seven or eight. I kind of got this, or maybe even before when I was in high school. So two thousand four or two thousand five. And I'm definitely a person like. I stick with stuff like I don't like to change that much because I find developing consistency is really important. Um, and so sticking on one mouthpiece, we're working on something now. We'll see if I end up changing um, with with Marcinkowitz. Uh, it's a top secret project, but um, that's what I'm playing on. What what was the actual question? I don't even remember what his actual question was. Uh, how does it compare to the 51D? And how did I choose? So I choose the mouthpiece based on the sound concept that I have, which has changed over time. But the mouthpiece has kind of stuck with me. I've changed horns and I've not changed mouthpieces. Um, you know, that's the reason I don't play that much bass trombone or large bore tenor is because I don't like to change the mouthpiece. Um, I just find <clears throat> it just there's so many small muscles that get affected by changing things here. Right. So. I've just been, I've stuck with it 
I played a Shoki 150D, 51D before that, and I still have it, and it's still in my Con 98H. I have a 51D that's in that horn, so it's not like I don't use it at all, but um, I don't make a priority of doing it, but I chose based on the sound concept and based on how it feels. It's, it's a marriage of the two. It has to bring together um, the actual feel so that it's comfortable to a point but also get the sound concept and if you go too far one way or the other i can say that like if you go too far to comfort you're going to sacrifice sound quality if you go too far to sound quality you might end up with um, problems down the road leading to tension or leading to focal dystonia or something more serious because you didn't find something that was a good balance of the two so i try to make sure to have a good balance between uh the comfort and the sound concept so that's how i pick a mouthpiece so basically what you want to do is play as many different mouthpieces as you can right if you play as many different things and kind of choose based on what you uh feels comfortable and one and and what gets you the sound that you need to know so he says top five standards working on applications right now Ooh, top five standards like all time i'm gonna i'm not gonna be able to do that i'm gonna say top five standards that i'm thinking about recently uh, there's so many good ones that's why i can't really pick you know but some all-time ones will be in this list so i really like um so in love it's a cole porter tune i'm a big cole porter fan i think cole porter wrote some really interesting melodies and some really interesting uh like choices harmonically um <clears throat> let's see what else uh so in love is a great one uh on the street where you live that's a favorite um on the street where you live i like uh, uh i thought i rem uh <laughs> blanking on them I concentrate on you. Sorry, I gotta I gotta sing through the lyrics sometimes to remember the names of these songs. I concentrate on you. Another Cole Porter. That's three. Uh, I wish I knew. I love that one. Four and five as uh, body and soul. You gotta you gotta know body and soul. I saw somebody post this online the other day. If you don't know body and soul, get off the internet. And go learn body and soul. That's like if you don't if you're a jazz musician, want to be a jazz musician, and you don't know body and soul, you better get to it. Hop to it. Classic melody really important for learning to phrase ballads and improvise over ballads and really bring the emotion out of a tune or really bring your emotion to a tune or both is like a really important development uh, for you as a musician. So just playing something simple really well is hard. You know, sometimes it's like it's way easier to play giant steps or something because it tells you what to play, right? It's like very clear, like here's the harmony, it's moving quickly, play through this hard thing but like on a ballad you have to think so much about what you want to sound like you have to think about how people are going to perceive the sound how they're going to experience the sound over time like in real time how it compares to other things that have been played already in the set you know like there's a lot of complexity there so i definitely recommend learning ballads learning to play melodies really well which those are the which um those um, type of tunes, songbook tunes, help you do that really well. All right, UNT Jazz Division. This is our Jazz Division Instagram. Uh, I'm not sure who posted the question right at this moment, but the UNT Jazz Division, if you don't know, it's up there right now. We're, uh, 
a new initiative from the UNT Jazz Faculty to share some of what our students are up to uh, at UNT. So it's right up there, at UNT Jazz Division. If you want to follow, please follow. Uh, what has been your biggest trombone-related hurdle that you've had to overcome? How did you do it? Ooh, what is my biggest trombone-related hurdle? I had a really, really, really hard time with uh, the upper register for a very long time. Um, and I still, to a certain extent, do. Uh, in terms of like, I am not the guy that's going to be like Dave Steinmeier, who's uh, he used to play in the Airmen of Note, like lead trombone. Like, I am not that guy that's going to like smack the crap out of some high notes. I can play high notes now. I couldn't before, but um, I really had a hard time with that. And I really thought that was a big shortcoming in my playing and that it meant that I wasn't good because I couldn't do certain things. And then I realized that it actually didn't matter because I didn't hear music that way. Um, I don't like music that much that has that. Like sometimes I do, but a lot of times, like I don't hear music with the trombone playing that role. I hear trombone having a warm, dark sound. I hear the trombone playing in the meat of the register, like maybe up to a high F at best. But really being able to like slam those high notes is not like, it's not like, uh, a huge part of like my musical identity that I like want to present like the high notes you know so anyway like I had a real hang up with that for a long time and as soon as I let it go all of a sudden I could play better in the upper register I mean I had Wycliffe Gordon showing me all these exercises tons of books that I used to do and Carmine Caruso exercises and thinking about strengthening corners and all that stuff and like so much like research and oh why can't I do it and fr fretting about it and this and that and f getting all tense about it and like um, the best thing was just to relax and say you know this doesn't really matter and uh, I mean I can show you some exercises there's a great video uh, I think it's great because it's my approach but um, there's a, a video I put on YouTube that's seven high note tips or something like that and um, that that outlines kind of my approach to it so I won't bore you with the whole kind of spiel right now but um, that's that's kind of my approach so letting go all of a sudden like it was amazing within weeks as soon as I was like you know what this isn't really what my strength anyway I, it'll be fine I'll get through without it all of a sudden I had those notes and uh, just by having that more relaxed approach, I think really, really helped. So that's been an important part. Uh, he's incredibly inspiring. His music is incredibly inspiring. The first thing I ever heard of his was a colleague of mine, a fellow student at Eastman, who played at a studio class one time. He played puddle jumping. And I was like, what the heck is that? So if you don't know puddle jumping, go check out that Marshall Jilks track, Puddle Jumping. And then I was like, who is that guy that played that? And then I went and kind of went down a deep uh, rabbit hole. And uh, I've been very fortunate to play with Marshall several times with different bands. Ryan Trudeau's band, we're on the um, Michael Davis big band, Hip Bone big band record together. And uh, in some other gigs we've played together. But Marshall's incredibly inspiring and I aspire to play as well as he does someday. Um, but he's, he's, he's really, really great. He came to our virtual jazz trombone boot camp this summer. He gave him a great master class, um, talking about a lot of stuff. He's incredibly inspiring. So uh, I love Marshall. His compositions, his playing, everything. Top, top notch. His playing with Maria Schneider, uh, 
I haven't listened to the new record as much, but on the last record, Monarch and the Butterfly, him and Greg Gisbert are like featured there. It's just incredible. Particular strategies or processes when composing. Yes, um, I try to compose without um, too much self-editing, number one. I use a giant piece of score paper. I don't have one at home. It's sitting on my piano at school. Um, I use a giant piece of score paper and I just write ideas everywhere. Uh, I just, little melodic ideas, little harmonic ideas. Um, I try to see if I can make ideas relate to one another to see if maybe they can connect in some kind of way. Um, I try to use that kind of brainstorming approach um, and try to like uh, just compose, just compose, just be creative when I'm composing. Before I even try to like put things into tunes or put things into vibes, it's just like write some melodies, write some harmonies, write some, you know, write different things and just do that for a while before I kind of figure out exactly what I'm writing. I mean, usually I have a project in mind, like, you know, right now I'm trying to write some music that's either going to be a new here and now record or a new uh, record of a new project with a percussion ensemble. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it ends up being yet, but um, I'm just writing. I'm trying not to judge what I'm writing. I'm just writing, writing, writing. And then um, from there, I try to take ideas. This I stole from, like I guess, basically kind of the Bob Brookmeyer kind of school of composition stuff, which kind of I, I take ideas and I flip them on their head. I kind of, you know, play them backwards, play them forwards, kind of invert intervals, play, you know, try to try to make one idea related to and birthed out of uh, another, you know? Um, so that's what I do. I write. I just write. Just like if, as if you were writing words, you know? You just, the practice every great writer always talks about is just writing. You just have to, to be a great composer, you just have to write. You just have to write music and keep, keep going. Duke wrote over 3,000 something compositions in his life. And I don't know if I'll be able to keep up with that, but that's something that keeps me inspired. He wrote every day, you know, you gotta write every day. It's a practice, just like practicing your instrument. Abel, I once asked you why there aren't any huge trumpet invaders and the question came off wrong. I'm a trumpet myself. I know we've had some truly great voices emerge through the trombone, but what I meant was why they aren't jazz giants. Okay, I see how you, what you're saying. Who are trombone players? Pops, Bird, Dizzy, Miles, Train, all trumpeter, Sax, Duke, Monk, Mingus, Ella. Didn't play trombone either. Yeah, for sure. One of the, I think that the trombone innovators are from just a different part of the history. Glenn Miller, trombonist. Tommy Dorsey, trombonist. Big band leaders. You know, those are some big names, some really important names in history that are trombonists. But I get what you're saying, Abel. I see, I see uh, what you're saying. And I, I understood your question. And I think it's just a matter of perspective. JJ belongs up there. Curtis belongs up there. I think we sometimes get sidelined because we, um, people think that the trombone can't do things. So that's, a, you know, I'm out here to um, try and like spread the word. You know, we all have to be out here if it's trombone is spreading the word about the trombone can lead. The trombone is a great instrument. It's not obnoxious. It's not just gut bucket, right? It's like we we can play, be the lead instrument. It's just a matter of perception. People, I think, just think that the trombone can't do these things, you know? I mean, trombone shorty is pretty visible at this point. Um, and I think it's a matter of perspective because there's plenty of people that don't know who any of those people are. 
Um, and in jazz history, you know, the trombone just hasn't been given that same level of respect. But it doesn't mean that we can't into the future. Aiden, like, how often do you shed in a practice mute? Um, quite often, especially when I was in New York full time, um, all almost all the time practicing in a practice mute. But I've always had that problem. I've always lived in an apartment since I started school in 2005, 2005, you know. So I don't find that um, it's that much of a hassle other than you have to balance it out and practice without a practice mute also and work on certain things with a practice mute and certain things without a practice mute. Um, but if I'm in an apartment, I usually am practicing in a practice mute. So it could be several hours a day. Uh, so how often? Fairly often. I've tried a bunch of them. I have a schmute. Uh, they gave me one of those when I was in New Zealand last. Uh, and it's cool. I like it. It's kind of loud for a practice mute, but it's also um, very free-blowing, which is nice. And then um, it's too big to bring on the road, though. So I like this one. I've been getting into this one. This is an Okura practice mute. I've been trying to get them to send me some so I can sell them through my um, store. On my website, I've been trying to figure that out. So hopefully someday there'll be Okura mutes that I can import so people can check them out. They're fairly straight ahead, uh, but they're nice and small. It's a little more resistance than a schmute, but um, they're still pretty good. And they're cheap, so if you lose them, it's okay. I've lost plenty of practice mutes. I used to use a Yamaha Silent Brass. That was just like way too stuffy. Uh, oh, kill it. See? Robert Edwards approved right there. So... Uh, this is what I've been using, and I keep it in my trombone case. That's why I like it. It fits in the bell. So this is the where, for me, the dilemma comes in is, do I keep the practice mute in the bell, or do I get one of the, a trombone stand that fits in the bell? You know, like, which one when I'm trying to find, like, when I'm going on the road? Right now, doesn't matter. But in general, uh, trying to figure out, like, Hercules stand in the bell, or mute in the bell, or... I'm going to check out, there's these new stands from uh, woodwinddesigns.nl. I'm going to try these carbon fiber um, trombone stands. I'm going to try to figure, figure out how to get some of those over here to the States as well. So a lot of trombone uh, accessories coming at you. Any su suggestions to help younger players with articulation issues, specifically to cure the smears you hear between notes, if that makes sense? Oh, it makes sense. And we've been working on it this week with several of uh, my own students. And myself too. I was just trying to make a video about doodle tonguing earlier, and I had the same problem happening. Um, so here's a few thoughts about that. So I happen to have my trombone today. So, all right. It gets into a longer con conversation about slide technique and like best practices, and people will argue about it. But what I find is using a snappy slide technique uh, gets rid of that by. Um, using the phrase, stay longer, move faster, right? So particular, usually first to fourth or second to fourth is the kind of contributor to that kind of nonsense, that yuckiness that gets in between the notes. So you got to, I use a flick of the a flick of the wrist going this direction. I know it's kind of looks weird, but we push with the thumb and catch with the fingers and get a nice snappy slide technique. We don't use the whole arm like we do maybe in classical music or some other people talk about, but if you watch some great videos of JJ or Curtis, they're using a lot of fingers. Lots of fingers. So uh, that's what I like to do. So use that phrase, stay longer, move faster. 
uh, try, even though the music is smooth, the slide has to be snappy. It has to move really fast. If it moves slow, that's when you get all that, that yuckiness inside there. So move the slide as fast as you can, even if it's slow music. The slide speed has nothing to do with uh, the music or how it feels or sounds. It should be quick, it should be fast, it should be uh, snappy all the time. If you, if you want it to be clean. If you don't want it to be clean, then doesn't matter. But even when you're playing like a row shoe, the slide speed has to be really fast. And if you don't move fast enough, sometimes you like get there and then the slide keeps moving. It's like, ba da da da. Like as you're going out, it goes, meh. And we want to get rid of that. So the slide speed is really important. That's often the case is either they're using too much arm and it's too slow or um, they're not getting right to the position right on time. So you just want like ba, 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 ba. Like for every position, it should snap right there, right? So the muscle memory has to be super strong, right? So you have to do it a lot of times, just like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of repetitions. I know that's uh, maybe not the answer you wanted to hear, but that's how, that's how I've always approached it and how my teachers approached it with me. And there's different approaches from different people, and I think it's good to kind of get a couple different opinions. But for me, that works really well, um, and it always cleans stuff up to get that slide moving faster. That's 100% true. How do you incorporate different harmonic sounds when playing over changes? Uh, by isolating each one and practicing each one separately, um, knowing what the different sounds are, uh, knowing what uh, they sound like. Like, uh, for example, you could take a triadic approach and say like, okay, what triads work over dominant chords? Um, so like if you play a D triad over a C7, it's gonna have a natural nine and it's gonna have a natural 13. But if you play a D flat minor triad, it's gonna have a flat nine and a flat 13, which gives you a different sound. So uh, that's too, like something you could do. You could say, go on a, on a, a tune, a simple tune that has, uh, maybe one, two, five in it. Or you could even just apply it to like the last four bars of a blues, like ignore it on the first eight bars where we get to that two, five section in the last four of the blues and say, okay, two. And then on that five chord, you're going to say, I'm going to use this device. I'm going to play D flat minor triad over top of this C. And how do I resolve that to F, right? Um, so you do that. And then you can say, okay, now I want to use like a more scalar approach so instead of d flat d flat minor triad i'm going to play a d flat melodic minor scale and you might play just five four three two one on that d flat minor i don't think i just sang it in the right key but uh you, that's the right kind of sound ba, da, dee, da, da, and you end up on the fifth of the one chord so you can take those different approaches scalar think about a diminished arpeggio and say okay now here's the comes the five chord i'm gonna do only diminished here so for me, it's important for students to take one approach at a time and kind of learn how to use it and then move to the next thing and then move to the next thing and move to the next thing. Because otherwise, it's just like a hodgepodge grab bag of stuff. You know, I spent years kind of just like focused on like, I'm going to use the altered scale. I don't know why, because that was something I didn't understand. And I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And then I did melodic minor and then I did diminished. I was late comer to the diminished. I usually start my students with the diminished because I guess because I find it to be so useful. And um, I started backwards, I guess, and I went altered and then melodic minor and then diminished. But I go the other way, diminished melodic minor, altered, because altered doesn't have the most specific sound. It's kind of general a little bit. It has a lot of, art, a lot of color tones in it, I mean. So that's a way.
hope that helps. What tunes do you think is important to know? There's so many tunes that are important to know. Uh, I could not list them all for you right at this moment. Um, all the ones that you already know you should know, you should probably know. All the things you are. Autumn Leaves, Blues, Stella by Starlight. All of these types of tunes you should know, right? And then there's, there's always going to be like regional tunes. But I find that like it's pretty interesting to see like there were tunes that people played in Rochester at Eastman. And then there's tunes people I play with in New York play. And there's tunes that people play in Texas. There's tunes people played in Tallahassee when I was in teaching at FSU. Like there's all these regional tunes. Like certain places don't play certain tunes. Like at Eastman, everybody likes to play the old milestones. Why? I don't know. I like the old milestones. But then you go to somewhere else and they don't really play that tune. Uh, or conception like people in new york play conception people other places maybe don't play conception or certain pockets of people so it's really regional kind of what tunes people play um i was found i found out from my one of my students that people in alabama play on the street where you live which i never learned until i was at juilliard and uh, i never had heard it never thought about it and he's like oh yeah we play that one all the time so it's very regional in terms of what tunes you need to know but i would go to you know your favorite records what do your favorite what are what tunes do your favorite players play and start to learn them? I think it's really important to go and learn, you know, bird tunes, Bud Powell tunes, monk tunes, Dizzy Gillespie tunes. They have a really good kind of base to operate from, and then to learn more specialized tunes. Like I kind of usually, if I when when I've put together improv classes in the past, some people like to do like a language-based approach, which I also really like um, in terms of like using certain devices. But then um, maybe at the master's level or something, I might take a different approach of like using composers or approaches, which is similar to like dialects of the language. So right, you, once you already have like a good established uh, understanding of the language, you can say like, OK, so how am I going to approach, you know, this tune by Jerry Mulligan differently than I'm going to approach a bird tune differently than I'm going to approach a um, contemporary tune like a Roy Hargrove tune or how am I going to differentiate that from Cedar Walton or Wayne Shorter. Like there's different types of approaches and devices that those composers used and they played with that then you might also want to incorporate into your playing and understanding. So um, that's not like telling you exactly what all those things are because that would take far, far too long and I couldn't do it right here in this Q&A. But um, you, should know com you should know tunes, you know, like there's going to be different tunes for everyone, but like you definitely need to know body and soul you definitely need to know like all the tunes that people call often uh anything that like anything you can find to play along to online like that's popular enough that you should probably know it but you can't know all tunes you know on green's dolphin street you should probably know it um you know i wish i knew do people call that one that much some people but do you need to know it or sweet pumpkin or like uh there's lots of tunes that's like just some people play them and some people don't um you know, we worked on Cone Alma this semester. Sometimes that's a good one to know. We worked on, you know, Moments Notice, you should know. Giant Steps, you should know. But are people going to call Fifth House on you, which is another Coltrane tune that's, like, based on the cycle? Probably not. But Tune Up, maybe. Countdown, maybe, if people are being really mean. So if you've heard of the tune, you should probably know it. Um, and, and while on those topics of tunes, I got to say that you got to know all the parts of the tune. My another pet peeve. We talked about that other pet peeve earlier uh, about inner urge. But um, one of my pet peeves is when people learn tunes and they don't learn the intros or the interludes or the shout courses. It's part of the tune. If the composer wrote it, it's part of the tune. Learn the whole tune. 
one specific example I'll give you, whisper not. Learn the shout chorus. Thank you. Rant over. All right, so thanks so much for being here. I'm going to sign off for today, but uh, have an amazing weekend, and uh, we'll catch you all next week.